ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Carolyn Stern. She is the president and CEO of EI Experience, an executive leadership development and emotional intelligence training firm. She's also the author of The Emotionally Strong Leader. And today we'll be discussing her book. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. One of the things I notice in my coaching practice is that sometimes when I'm brought in to help with a specific situation, I'm given a brief. My client will describe the behaviors that they're witnessing. And then almost immediately, they describe a lot of what they believe to be the whys behind the behaviors, which of course they really can't know. They can only truly know the observed behavior. Why do people judge and label the whys behind behavior. Now, do your clients label other people's whys? Or yes. Their own no, whys? it's not their own. It's always everybody. <laughs> well, that's the trick, right? We have to learn our own whys. So but, but why are we doing what we're doing? And so few of us actually pay attention to, to our, our whys and we love to point fingers. And so I think the critical thing to be an emotionally strong leader is you need to figure out, first of all, what your emotional makeup is, why you're triggered by those people that your clients are coming in and talking about. But then why are you doing what you're doing with that person? I think it's really easy for us to judge other people's behaviors. And then unfortunately, if we don't actually ask them why they're doing what they're doing, what's behind their why, we, we just keep the conversation very surface. Right. Well, so it's it's a dicey practice. It leads to perception errors and misconceptions, yep. miscommunications, mishaps. And so assessing feelings of others, as you say, so that's a dicey and we misread. But internally, would you say that most people know their own emotions or most people don't know their own emotions? I think our we have a very small emotional vocabulary. Mm. I've been doing this for, for 20 years and every single one of my classes, every single one of my coaching sessions like you, every single one of my training programs, I always start with a one word feeling. Mm. How are you feeling in this moment? Mm. And, and the thing is, is that's the first step. And a lot of times people have the general, the happy, the sad, the, the angry, but they don't have a much larger vocabulary. And the problem is there are tons of nuances, for instance, and levels of intensity. I can be elated or I can be content. They're both levels of happiness, but mm -hmm. at different levels of intensity. So I think we don't ever actually get taught about emotions. We don't talk about them. We stuff them down. At least in my family, I was told that kids are supposed to be seen and not heard. But then we go into the education system. I've been teaching for almost 30 years and at the university for 25, we're not teaching this. So these kids don't, these young Gen Zs and, and millennials, they don't have a good emotional vocabulary either. Right now, above my desk, I have a picture, a poster of emotions. And every day, at least three times a day, I check in with how I'm feeling. Hmm. One, it's important figure, to figure out what our emotions are. Then two, what is that feeling telling you about you? We're people. We have emotions. We make decisions, have behaviors that are emotionally driven. We use logic to retroactively buttress whatever we landed on emotionally. But not only do we not teach about how to understand, not only do we not have a lot of facility with language to describe, but 
the whole concept of emotion tends to be verboten in the workplace. And you make a very interesting distinction in your book between emotions and emotional. Can you talk about that? Yes. One of the stories I talk about, and I still remember this, this was a coaching client back in the day, and he didn't want to work with me. Most people don't sort of normally don't (laughs) work with me because they're like, oh, you're going to make me talk about emotions. And he said, having emotions is unprofessional. And I said to him, having emotions is not unprofessional. Being emotional is unprofessional, but we all have emotions. It's learning how to gain the emotional skills to enhance our capacity to lead with strength and kindness. That's what the book really equips you with. Recognize the emotion, but don't get swept away by it. So how does jumping a little bit ahead, but how does understanding my own emotions help me to manage other people and their emotions? After all, emotions aren't facts. They're my feels that are triggered by facts or cause me to create a fact pattern that may or may not be the same fact pattern other people see. It may or may not be maladaptive to the situation. How does that first step, I've I've looked at the chart. I know what I'm feeling. I've thought a little bit about what's making me feel that way. How does that help me manage somebody else? In a nutshell, what I think emotional intelligence is, is speaking your truth respectfully and professionally. Hmm. And so what I need to do is say, hey, Gabriella, the other day at the office, you, you did this and I felt that. No one can make you feel anything. You do that all by yourself. But we all have triggers, whether that's entitlement, whether that's miscommunication, whether that's being misunderstood or ignored, whatever your triggers are, figuring out why you're triggered. What is it about that person? You can't make anyone change their behavior. All you can do is tell people how you're feeling. You own, you claim the I. Mm-hmm. I feel when you did this, I felt, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story and it's, it's actually a very painful story, but a true story. I was at a fitness resort speaking on one of my talks. And as I said, in the book, the book has helped me lose. Now it's even more than I talk about in the book, but I've lost 125 pounds. Mm, congratulations. And That's hard. Thank you. Thank you. It is very hard, but I, I stopped eating about my feelings and started dealing with them. Mm. But in my off times, I was wearing my Lululemons and a woman came up to me and said, oh my God, I can't believe they make Lululemon that big. My sister's about as fat as you. What size is that? Holy moly. Wow. Okay. And I was so triggered and upset. And this is something that plagued me. I've been up and down four times, hundred pounds. And I was struggling with my weight. And in the moment, I just put with my tail between my legs said at the time, Lululemon only went up to a size 12. So I said it was a size 12. Hmm. But you and I both know that you can stretch those babies, even if you're not in a size 12, you can squeeze yourself into them. So I probably wasn't, not I probably, I wasn't a size 12, but I was putting them in on anyways. Hmm. I went for a walk and I was so upset that this woman had said something to me. So the very next day, I thought, I I have to deal with this Mm. because I wanted to leave. And this is one of the, by the way, this is one of the best resorts in in, in the world. It's one destination spa resort in the world. And here I am just wanting to leave. And I went up to her and I said, hey, do you you mind if I pull, pull you aside? And I said, when you said, and then I repeated back everything she said, which is when you said, oh my God, I can't believe they make Lululemon that big. My sister is about as fat as you. What size is that? I felt hurt. And what I'd like you to do in the future is know the impact of your words. 
How did she react? She, of course, said, oh, my God, I didn't mean that. You have such a pretty face, blah, 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 blah. It didn't matter. What mattered is I finally spoke up for the hurt girl that had been teased all my life. And I felt empowered. Right. It doesn't matter. That's that's the point to the story. You can't change other people's behaviors. All you can do is keep your side of the street clean. If I'm a listener and I think, okay, I'm going to be aware of my my emotions. I'm going to be an empathetic, active listener. I'm going to empower my team. And when they share about a problem, then then how do I deal with that without finding myself entangled, enmeshed? What does a healthy boundary look like? You need to determine your emotional makeup. Mm -hmm. And so if you have too much empathy, that's the dark side of empathy. When you get enmeshed in people's stuff, carry their emotional burdens on your shoulders. And you need to have compassion, but boundaries. So when someone's telling me their stories, and I've heard some pretty, as I'm sure you have as well, some pretty sad stories. You cannot take people's problems home with you because ultimately what you're saying is, I don't think you can handle it. Let me take on the burden for you. But as coaches, as leaders, we need to empower our people to believe that they can solve whatever problem comes their way. And so the the key is, is to listen. You can feel with the person because that's what empathy is, not sympathy is feeling for, Mm. empathy is feeling with. But then you need to move to solution mode, which is what are you, what do you think you should do about that? You right. need to coach them through their problems. You don't need to solve them. And that's the biggest mistake that I'd say leaders make is they think that they need to be the problem solving hero. And that's right. the worst thing you can do. Right. And especially with today's younger employees. We talked a little bit before our interview started about how Gen Z and millennial employees are the most anxious generation. They are the most open about talking about their mental health. But then you suggested they are not the best at dealing with their emotions. Yeah. So there was a study done and it shows that Gen Z are lower in problem solving. So that's solving emotional problems, Mm. stress tolerance, that's coping well with stress and lower in independence, which means they're self, they're, they're low, they're not self-directed. They need too much reassurance. Mm. So why? Well, they grew up with phones and helicopter parents. And so this generation, and I was actually interviewed way in the beginning of the pandemic, because I was saying in some ways, obviously the pandemic brought on lost lives, lost jobs, bad economy, lots of bad things came from the pandemic. But the silver lining that did come from it is it taught these young people to be emotionally resilient because Google didn't know the answer and nor did their parents. And so it's really important for us, Gabriella, you and I talked about, we're both Gen X. We can't just tell people, figure it out because they don't know. They don't have the same emotional makeup. And I think that's the problem. This is what, what what I struggle with as a university professor. I give students stress. I don't teach them how to manage it. Mm. I put them in teams. I don't teach them how to work within those those teams. Now, in my classes, when students have problems, what I do is say, let's come and let's have a facilitated conversation and let you talk about your side of the story. And the other student talks about their side of the story. And I facilitate that conversation. But I guarantee I am the exception. Right. Professors are not doing that. 
And so these young kids don't learn these skills of how to have a difficult conversation. It becomes your responsibility as leaders to figure to, to teach them that when they haven't had that at home and they have certainly haven't had it in at, at school. Well, and this is very interesting because you start when you're in college, you start doing work team groups. And then, of course, when you get into the workplace, it is often teamed. It is often a matrixed organization and understanding what you're responsible for and then how to communicate around that is really critical. And in your book, you have a, a, a section where you talk about being 100 percent responsible and it's tricky if everybody's 100 percent responsible. Then isn't there some fractions? I mean, there's a lot of blame blame shifting that happens in businesses, as we spoke Mm -hmm. earlier in the conversation about this is what's wrong with you. And another thing, it's festivus every day. All the grievances are being aired. So let's work with a, a real world example. I'm let's say I work in marketing. And there are a series of emails that need to be drafted. But the person who was responsible to write them drafted something that wasn't any good. And so I had to rewrite them and the campaign went out late. How am I dealing with that 100% responsible piece? Well, the my question to you is, why did you write it? Rather than making the other person rewrite it. So what was going on? What are you afraid of? I see. Okay. My, so understanding, well, they, they weren't going to get there in time. Could be that. Or do, do you, do you trust the person? Do you feel like they're not capable? I would get into figuring out, I mean, why I talk about 100% responsibility. Well, then I can come from a place of resourcefulness. What can I do about the situation? If mm-hmm. I blame on people, all I'm doing is, is one making me the victim. And right. And I have no control of how other people clean up their side of the street. So my question to you, Gabrielle, is why are you writing the email? Right, right. Of course. Is it because you don't trust the person and that they think they're capable? Is it because you don't know how to teach, which, by the way, is something another big problem that I teach leaders is leaders. Think about it. You were never taught how to teach people to learn. Well, this is something that absolutely I see all the time. And and it comes into play. And especially if we, as you mentioned earlier about the lack of self-direction, if you have the Gen Xer who never learned how to teach and says, figure it out because they don't know how to teach it. And then you have somebody who needs not only to be taught, but extra guidance in terms of how to be resilient and figure things out on their own. It's a recipe for something falling in the gap. And so that, and but here's what's great about this. You've just identified the gap, which right. I've about, right? Which is, We need to figure out what these people in our workplace need from us. And so three big questions I always ask every employee, which is what do you need to feel connected to me and the team? What do you need to feel appreciated for your efforts? And what do you need to feel fulfilled in your role? And then I shut up and listen because that gives me the recipe on how to lead them. But the challenge is, you're right, we as leaders, I went, here's what's funny. I went to, I have two degrees in education. (laughs) Nowhere, nowhere did they actually teach me how to teach. They gave me the theory of pedagogy and all of those things. But never until I did my actual practicum did I actually learn how do I get a group of young people to pay attention to me? How do I? But how do you actually make it happen? Exactly. How do you? How do you actually make it happen in the real world? There's a famous saying: "Never let them see you sweat." And while that's an old saying, more recently I've been interviewing career networking experts, and they tell me when networking with professional colleagues, the message is always: "Things are great." No, I'm hanging on by a thread. Please save me. So, how do we square this image management? 
with emotional honesty. So how people feel affects how they perform. And it starts with you as the leader. You've got to be brave to have the real conversations about how you're feeling. You need to not be perfect. People don't follow people who are perfect. People follow people who are relatable. Hmm. Last November, I pretty much almost had a bit of a breakdown. The book was my my the book was almost done. I was teaching too many courses at the university. I would had so or we were we've never been busier as an emotional intelligence training firm. You can only imagine we've never been busier because people don't know how to tend to emotions. So they're finally realizing. I mean, that's again the gift that COVID did was it made leaders realize that people have emotions. They bubbled up to the surface when COVID happened and they couldn't help but hi- not hide them anymore. And so we've been busy and I I had a bit of a breakdown and I turned to my team with tears in my eyes and said, I'm losing it. Hmm. And I am feeling overwhelmed. I need support. And they came to my rescue. And I think leaders need to stop being stoic and unflappable. They need to start being real. If hmm. you're having a bad day, you model the way and share it. And then others to do the same. So at every single meeting, I always start with that one word feeling check-in. That one word feeling check-in doesn't need to be a long check-in explaining your why. If someone on your team says, I'm overwhelmed or I'm stressed or I'm really low, have a side conversation offline. Mm. But in that moment, if you think about Well, that's interesting because that tells you that really does help set your stage and how you are going to interact even if you have to achieve the same things, it tells you the way to achieve those things. It helps give you an important data point to go forward from. Well, that's how you learn about good communication styles. For instance, when I am at a keynote and I ask that question to the audience, and if someone's saying I'm tired or I'm doing a training program, you better believe I'm standing beside the tired person to keep them engaged during my talk, right? Right. So it really does give you data on what you can do with that emotion. Okay, they're they're not engaged or they're tired. What does that mean? And how can I adjust my communication style so that they will hear what I am saying? We need to be aware of the emotional burdens of our people. Right. And to teach and lead with empathy. Because if we're not teaching and leading with empathy, we're only coming at it from our vantage point. Here's what I need to tell you. Here's what I need to do. You're not figuring out what they need to hear in order for it to stick. In order for them to do what you need them to do. Your book is unique because the front half explores why leading from a place of emotional strength is powerful. And then the second part outlines how people can self-coach to a place of better emotional understanding. And the first part, is that self-assessment. And we talked a little bit about that at the top of our conversation, but I'm thinking how habits are hard to change. I'm an old dog, new tricks. It's, It's easy to read, but if I'm managing my expectations, it's not that easy to to do consistently, is it? Or is it? It's not easy, for sure, because you are changing, trying to change ingrained behaviors. Mm -hmm. But if you do a little bit every day, losing 125 pounds wasn't easy either. But it's like you can't eat an elephant, right? How do you eat an elephant with one one bite bite at a time? Yeah. So so for me, Gabrielle, I talk about this in the book that I struggle with independence. Why? I have a very bless her heart, overbearing mother. Mm. And growing up, I didn't learn how to stand on my own two feet. So now as a 51 year old middle age 
woman. I still question my judgments. I need a lot of reassurance. My staff tells me I pay them to reassure me, which is probably true, if I'm being honest. But but that's my Achilles heel. Every day I work on not asking reassuring questions. I, I work on trying to be self-directed when I know the answers that I don't have to ask people their, for their input. And that coupled with my high flexibility, I'm very flexible, which can be a great thing. I pivot. I've gone worked through many recessions. I, I know how to pivot my business when I need to. However, the dark side of flexibility is I flip-flop. Right. So you, you understand the strength and you understand how your strength can slide into that that challenge point for yourself. Yes. Uh, the next part of our self-assessment, self-coaching involves consulting with others about how they perceive us. If you're doing this exercise, how do you know if people are being honest? If one of my issues, for example, is that I can't take feedback People mm -hmm. might not tell me that. They might not feel comfortable telling me the information. I know when I'm doing 360 feedback in work settings for people, the people, even though I'm an independent coach, independent consultant, want to make really sure it's confidential because yeah. the risk to them is very high or they they feel the risk is high if it isn't confidential. So how, if you're doing this self-coaching by yourself and there isn't an outside person collecting this feedback, how do you know that what you're getting is a true assessment? You don't, but you can ask for it. You can let them know that I'm I'm trying a self-coaching model. This is the second step of, of, of the model. And one of the steps is to consult with others. And I really would love to hear your honest opinion. And it's okay if you hurt my feelings. Okay. I really want to learn to be better. And so you will never know if they're telling the truth, right? I mean, that's my my biggest anxiety in general is is what if, right? <laughs> what if? And so, but all you can do is ask for it and be honest and and really hear it. And I wrote in the book about how do you make sure you don't dismiss the feedback too soon? Well, right. Oh, well, that person, and now I'm going to project why that person thinks what they think. Yeah. So how, yes. what are some things you can do to help coach yourself to, to listen? Or is it just, just listen to it, Gabriella, just don't jump to conclusions. I mean, is that simply just remind yourself? What are some things you can do? I think you need to separate the message from the messenger. So I think the important thing Gabriella is, is let's say you don't like the person you're asking for feedback. Mm -hmm. Maybe don't start with those people. Maybe start with people who act, you actually do like right. and, and respect, but maybe there's, there's some tension between you and someone else. And you really want to know what their opinion is of you. You have to separate it because that's giving you powerful information, how they perceive you, even if it's not in the best view of you mm. is telling you a lot about you. Because again, as I, as I said, in the book, it's you can have the greatest intentions, but how it lands, your impact on others is, is very different. And so the key is to one, separate the messenger and, and from the message. The other is, is what if it is true? Could could part of it be true? And what could you do differently? Or how could you be different if it is, in fact, true? I think that the situation, right? right? I, I think you really need to, be, to determine. Well, that's why this is hard stuff. It's hard to self-assess and to really recognize. And then once you've done that very hard stuff, even if it's incremental, it's hard to really actively listen to feedback, which may not feel nice. And I think it 
is helpful to remember your intention is not to be bad at taking feedback. But if that's how it's perceived, if that's how it's perceived, it's important for you to understand that, right? Yeah. And I think it's important that you state your intention. I am trying to be a better, emotionally strong, connected leader. And I want to know how I'm showing up, even if it hurts my feelings, because I am bigger than my feelings. Well, okay. So question though, just earlier when you related the story about then going back and and letting the individual know you hurt my feelings, this would be a situation where you wouldn't let people know if your feelings were hurt due to their feedback, right? Because, or would you? Well, I think it depends. I mean, you obviously want to thank them for the feedback because even if it did hurt your feelings, you want to encourage that kind of open transparency. Mm. I think also you need to figure out again in those moments when you're listening to the feedback, I probably would would recommend not to tell them in the moment how you're feeling Mm. because you Again, if you go back and say, you gave me some negative feedback, Gabrielle, I'm sitting with it, I'm feeling really angry. If I say that in the moment, you're never going to give me feedback like that again. But if I sit with it and go away, walk about, walk away and think about why am I angry? What What is that anger telling me? Well, mm. anger stems from injustice or unfairness. So what is it about that situation makes you feel something's unfair or unjust? Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then understanding that and unpacking that. Yeah, well, and, and then again, if that has to do with that other person, then maybe and only then would I would I bring that up. But I think the more important thing, and again, I think you need to look at your organization. Do you have a culture of of open feedback? And if you don't, then I would encourage again as the leader for you start to solicit feedback all the time and openly. Every single one of my classes at the end of my class. I always ask, what can I be doing more of? What can I be doing less of? And what am I doing just right? Right. Well, the rest of your book gives a step-by-step process from which to identify the gaps, strategize how to close them, remove barriers, as well as developing an action plan that acknowledges that habit forming is tough and there are going to be hiccups along the way. And if there's one thing that you want listeners to walk away from hearing this episode to keep in mind, what would that one thing be? That changing emotions is hard and you're probably going to relapse and to create a relapse prevention plan and a relapse prevention plan is what am I going to do while I'm strong before I've relapsed? What am I going to do to get myself back on track? I think that was the biggest. Why did have I gained 100 pounds four times over? Because I never had a relapse prevention plan. Now I know what I need to do when I go off my diet. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me in conversation and to share your story and your book and all of these stories that help make those lessons stick. So thank you so much. Thanks, Gabriella, for having me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>